Julie Rose, and this is Top of Mind. I have been a radio journalist for two decades, but a few years ago, I found myself avoiding the news for long stretches because of how depressing and divisive it all seems. I still wanted to be informed and engaged on important issues, though, and I figured I couldn't be alone in that. So we created this podcast. Each week, we tackle one tough topic in a way that will challenge you, help you feel more empathy, and empower you to become a better citizen, a kinder neighbor, and a more effective advocate. Today, a big moment for unions and why it matters. I enjoy my job and I do love Starbucks. I just want to be able to make the company better and make it what it used to be. Amanda Rivera has been a Starbucks barista for a decade. But since the pandemic, things have changed. They're just not giving us enough people to work. So we're working multiple positions during our shift. I could be making frappuccinos and also taking money and brewing coffee. You know, it would just be weeks and weeks of just us drowning every day and trying to cover for people who just need to go in the back and cry because it's just overwhelming. And they were talking amongst themselves. Did you see what they did in Buffalo? Why can't we do that? Buffalo, New York, where in 2021, baristas at a couple of stores formed the Starbucks Workers United Union and lit a fire that quickly spread nationwide. So by summer 2022, dozens of Starbucks locations had voted to unionize, and Amanda Rivera was organizing her coworkers to do the same in Atlanta. It just felt like if the company wasn't going to really, truly invest in us, then we were going to have to invest in each other. And so that's, that's why we did what we did. Why do you keep working at Starbucks? I mean, if you're so frustrated with what they, how, how you've been treated, why go to the trouble to unionize rather than just go find another job somewhere else? Well, because all jobs have their problems. I've been with the company 11 years. I want to be at this company. I do love my job. Is it frustrating? Sure. What job isn't? But I want Starbucks to be what it was. I want Starbucks to be that inviting place that people come to and you know who they are. I've, I've known people so long that I've seen their children grow up and go to college. You know, it's like, it's my job is important. I think that especially now that we have a union, I feel as though Starbucks could be a career. It could be something that I do the rest of my life. By 2023, more than 350 Starbucks stores had unionized. Workers at a massive Amazon warehouse in Staten Island stunned the company with a successful election to unionize. And meanwhile, established unions representing auto workers, screenwriters, actors, and healthcare workers were holding historic strikes. We are in a unique moment that we haven't seen for at least four decades. This is Thomas Cohan. He's a professor emeritus at MIT and a nationally recognized expert on organized labor. So we reached out for a reality check because as a news consumer, it certainly feels like something's up with unions. But you never know if that's just because of all the headlines and social media, right? Well, Cohan says, yes, this is big. It's a turning point even. We've seen a tremendous growth in interest in joining a union, steady increase in public support for unions, 
more organizing activity at, in uh, workplaces across the country in different industries, and much, much more militancy in uh, existing unions negotiating uh, large collective bargaining agreements with threats of a strike. And most importantly, I think, they are asking for not only better wages and benefits, but they're addressing other issues at the workplace around diversity, around technology, around the values of the organization, around dignity at work. Don't call me a partner at work. Treat me as a partner. That's what the Starbucks employees are saying. Give them the respect that they want. That's something that this workforce is determined to achieve, and I don't see that going away even if the economy changes and even if uh, some of these union uh, drives don't meet with success. So the bottom line is these are not our grandfather's unions. And Kohan says the faster employers and public policymakers and really the general public figure that out, the better it'll be for the U.S. economy and for workers across the board. So today on Top of Mind, we're examining the assumptions on which many of us have built our opinions about organized labor. And we're going to spend the majority of our time inside the movement to try and get a clearer understanding of what's motivating this new wave of organizers and how established unions are responding. Kohan says the inklings of this shift began in the 1980s, an era of deregulation, corporate expansion, and weak unions. For American workers, the coming decades brought stagnant wages, increased inequality, and they began to say that, look, we need to do something to replace uh, our lost income. Uh, And so that was the background. But then comes the pandemic and all of the experiences that uh, we uh, went through, both those that we call essential workers who had to go to work and deal with the safety and health issues and were said uh, to be respected, but maybe not uh, followed through in all cases, as well as uh, people who were able to work at home for some or all of the pandemic. And that led people to reassess what's important to us at work, what's important to our families, what's important to our careers, Are we in the best place or are there better places? And then the tight labor markets gave more people an opportunity to move if they felt um, that they weren't being treated as well as they should. And so all of that snowballed. And then as the pandemic uh, wound down and we experienced this very high rate of inflation, which was uh, up at six, seven, eight, at 1.9%, this inflation was eating away at their standard of living in ways that they hadn't experienced. At the same time, that companies were doing very well and they recognized that we have lost ground and we have lost significant ground relative to the companies that are making good profits. And into this perfect storm comes a new generation of employees, more excited about unions than their elders, and more willing to demand things beyond the pay and benefits that U.S. labor law allows in union negotiations. They say, don't tell me about what issues we can bargain on because of the law and which ones are off limits. We want flexibility at work. We want predictable schedules. We want to have a voice on new technology because we want to make sure that we understand how it's going to be used on our workplace and that we have the skills needed to engage and we want to have a voice in making sure that we participate in those issues. You know, we have seen what our parents have experienced, 
And we're determined we're not going to just put up with being controlled by some big bureaucratic organization, whether that's a company or a union. We want a voice. And Kohan says Gen Z workers are more willing to walk away if companies don't respond. Gone are the days when workers joined a union for the security of spending decades at one company. And that's why I think it's very important right now that we do find a way for companies and unions and their workforces to work together to realize these expectations and to to do it in ways that promote um, quality of service, quality of patient care, productivity and innovation, effective use of technologies. All of these are possible, but we've got to bring worker voice into those in constructive ways. Thomas Kohan is a professor emeritus at the MIT Sloan School of Management and the Institute for Work and Employment Research. So, two simultaneous avenues of activity mark this current union moment. One is established unions like the United Auto Workers or Screen Actors Guild striking more aggressively and bringing different demands to the table. And the second, is workers forming new unions where they haven't been before, like Amazon and Starbucks. I kind of always felt that Starbucks needed a union. And white-collar workplaces where you might not expect a union, like tech startups, video game developers, even graduate schools. Stanford's rapidly approaching being, I think, the second richest university in the world. And it just feels to me like we should have better working conditions here. Things shouldn't be quite so difficult. Okay. But why form a union to meet those needs? That's ahead on Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Hey, Top of Mind listeners, I have another podcast I want to recommend to you. It's from the BYU Radio family of podcasts, and it's called The Appleseed. It's a show filled with stories for you and your family. Each episode features master storytellers sharing all kinds of stories, folk tales, fairy tales, personal and family tales. So it's perfect for road trips, for bedtime, or really anytime you're looking for something that the whole family can enjoy together. And the stories you'll hear will likely get your family sharing their own stories with each other, which is really the best part. It's the payoff. So listen to The Appleseed wherever you get your podcasts. Amanda Rivera has always been passionate about coffee. I was a geography major and I had the opportunity to work with one of my professors and make maps about coffee producing countries and, you know, where coffee grows, what allows it to grow the best and what goes into like a really good cup of coffee. I wasn't really sure what to do after college and so I thought that Starbucks was like this cool, progressive company. You got healthcare at 20 hours. You got all of these other amazing benefits. And I was like, I could work at Starbucks. I could move my way up. I could use my passion for coffee to really make the company better. I could grow with Starbucks. But also? I always thought that it would be a good idea for Starbucks workers to have a union, but only because I thought all workers deserved a union. I come from a family of union people. My great-grandfather was a union coal miner. A lot of my uncles were in the UAW in Detroit. And so I learned 
from an early age of what it meant to have a union and why it was important. But it wasn't until after the pandemic, when the cost-cutting Starbucks had done to weather the crisis, started to feel like the new norm, that Rivera got to thinking seriously about unionizing. My coworkers were saying, you know, we're not getting enough hours. They're just not giving us enough people to work. So we're working multiple positions during our shift. In addition to just having people come in and and order on their phones or order in the cafe, we also now have delivery orders. Work felt frantic in a way that it hadn't before. But at the same time, people weren't getting scheduled for enough shifts to qualify for the generous health and education benefits that had drawn many of them to Starbucks in the first place. So there were times when people were having to go to other stores, and that's still kind of the case. You go to a store a couple miles away or a couple blocks away to get the hours that you need to make sure that you're going to qualify for benefits. And now that Starbucks offers full payment for university through Arizona State, a lot of people are there for education. You know, and those people need to be getting 20 hours a week to be able to stay enrolled at ASU. In public statements, Starbucks points out that it was still recovering from prolonged challenges of the pandemic when the first union organizing efforts began at its stores in Buffalo. The implication is that, given time, Starbucks would get back to being the workplace employees like Rivera once enjoyed. But as the recovery slogged on, she lost confidence. Well, what it felt like was as if the company had sold out, as if we have good things, but we're going to make it very hard to get those things. But we still want you to work at the same level or higher than you had before. And they knew other stores were having a lot of success unionizing. So Rivera and another shift supervisor took charge. I work on the morning, I talk to my people, and then the night person talked to all the night people. And we were really able to keep it very quiet, which was so important because we knew at the time, especially Starbucks was going to really come in and lie to us, tell us that things were going to be vastly different. We couldn't talk to our bosses anymore or that we would lose benefits or any number of things. Now, to form a union in the United States, you either have to get your employer to agree to voluntarily recognize you, which rarely happens, or you have to get 30% of your coworkers to sign cards saying they want a union. And then the National Labor Relations Board will hold an election. And if a majority of employees vote yes in that election, your union will be recognized. Union organizers will often try to keep that first card-signing step as quiet as possible so the company doesn't have as much time to mobilize opposition. As a result, companies are often caught off guard and haven't trained their managers on what they can and can't say, according to labor law. Dozens and dozens of complaints have been filed against Starbucks along those lines. And the company commissioned an independent review that concluded... It had indeed failed to properly train managers to follow the law when dealing with union organizers in their stores. Amanda Rivera says convincing the other baristas at her Atlanta Starbucks to form a union really wasn't a tough sell. I think initially they just had a lot of questions. Um, We have a lot of students and a lot of people that are around, you know, maybe not necessarily activist circles, but are in areas that are Um, Like, I mean, colleges, you know, around progressive people and progressive ideas. And so they were like, well, I'm really interested. Like, what could this be? What what could this do for us? And so, you know, we just 
ended up having to do our own research. We used the Starbucks Workers United website to read up on what actually is a union and what Workers United stands for and kind of a little bit of the history. And we were still not really very knowledgeable, but it felt as though we cared enough about each other every single day that we were showing up for each other and that we could show up for each other even more if we were collective. Her store in Atlanta officially unionized in July 2022, one of dozens across the country by that point. But forming a union is only the first hurdle. Next comes negotiating a contract with your employer. And on that front, Starbucks and its unions have been stymied over how to proceed, with both sides claiming the other is not acting in good faith. Amanda Rivera says things have improved at her store, even without a negotiated contract in place. We actually were just given the option to turn off mobile orders whenever there might be something going on, as if, you know, we're super busy and we just need 15 minutes without people being able to mobile on the mobile order on their phone. We're able to turn off delivery orders also now. And, you know, I mean, that's just like the the most recent thing. With a union, we now can go on strike. We now feel as though our collective voice is stronger. And so the company is more obligated to fix things in a timely manner. For instance, we have been having issues with pipes in our store. And um, this is wastewater pipes, not the kind of thing you want to break in your Starbucks. Um, It had been an issue for years. We had taken it to the proper person, the um, manager of facilities for our region. We talked to her face-to-face about this. It has to be fixed. Our store is closing once a month or sometimes every other week because we're having wastewater come up on our floor in our bathrooms. And so it took the pipe completely eroding and having no option to fix it. They had to dig up the floor, you know, redo the piping. We didn't work for two weeks. But they got catastrophe pay during those two weeks, which was a big deal and something Rivera doubts they'd have gotten without the clout of being unionized. And... I I can't say that that's 100% a union victory, but at any other store I'd ever worked at, and even stores today, we know that you have to go and work at other places if your store is shut down for a remodel or, you know, anything like that. But we didn't have to do that. And we were very thankful to have a little time off during the busiest time of year. And a lot of students are taking finals and that kind of thing. So it was actually a really nice two weeks. As the workers, we are the majority and we want things to be better. And it feels as though workers have been ignored for so long and their voice is not meant as much as it should. And so why shouldn't we try and get everything that we can? Amanda Rivera is a Starbucks shift supervisor in Atlanta, Georgia, and a labor organizer for Starbucks Workers United. For its part, Starbucks says it supports the right of its workers to organize and has actually boosted turnout in union elections at its stores by actively encouraging workers to vote regardless of their position. But the company's also had a series of high-profile missteps, including a plan to raise benefits and pay, but only for workers who have not unionized. Starbucks says union stores will have to negotiate for those raises— An administrative law judge for the National Labor Relations Board says the plan is against the law, but Starbucks is appealing that decision. 
And Starbucks has taken another of its appeals all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. It involves seven employees who say they were fired for union organizing. That ruling will likely come in mid-2024. Now, there is a long history of service workers unionizing in this country. So, at least from that perspective, it's not terribly surprising to see Starbucks baristas organizing. But this current wave of union excitement also extends to workplaces where a lot of us wouldn't think there'd be much need for union reps and collective bargaining, like university research labs. Hi, uh, I'm Tom Chafee. I'm a fourth-year PhD worker at Stanford University in geophysics. You notice how Tom Chafee called himself a PhD worker rather than a PhD student? Well, he is both. But since 2016, more and more grad students have been emphasizing their status as workers. That was the year the National Labor Relations Board ruled that graduate students are employees under federal labor law and therefore eligible to unionize. Since then, Columbia, MIT, Harvard, Johns Hopkins, Northwestern, Dartmouth, and Duke are just a few of the dozens of schools where graduate students have formed unions. Stanford's union is one of the largest. A major part of what these universities' goal is, is to win Nobel Prizes. It's to get publications, it's to get awards, it's to get people in the National Academy of Sciences who come from Stanford or whatever the institution is. Um, it's a major part of image building for these universities, and they don't want their faculty doing teaching, so the people who end up doing a lot of the teaching, a lot of the undergraduate instruction are actually graduate workers. And graduate workers are the people who end up performing a lot of the background, a lot of the sort of tedious day-to-day, -day, you know, if you work in a biology lab, somebody's got to spend eight hours a day pipetting. So for me, sort of the fire in the union organizers, the fact that every part of this institution, people were feeling let down, people were feeling sort of a disconnect with the image that Stanford projected with the things that they had promised to us. That's when I decided that sort of we need to figure out what our power is as workers and find a way to tell them we, we deserve better. In fact, we have rights that guarantee us better conditions than this, and you need to deliver on that because we all chose to come here. Yeah, that's, um, you know, you talk about the pain <laughs> and, um, and how we chose to come here. And I think that that's part of what has a lot of people, and I'll admit I, I've been one of those people kind of scratching my head, like, okay, graduate students, you're not frontline workers, you're not emergency responders, you're not factory workers. You are students who also work while you're getting your degree. And I think a lot of us have been a little mystified why you would need a union. I mean, you got into Stanford. <laughs> the dream for, you know, a lot of people thinking about educational opportunities. And yet, I mean, to be blunt, you're complaining. People feel like, oh, you know, those complaining grad students. So, so um, what's, your, what's your response to that? I think it's an economic question more than anything. And the cost of living is very high here. Our salary is also higher than other uh, graduate schools often offer. However, ultimately, in terms of the cost of living, in terms of sort of the daily costs just to eat food here or to have a car here or to, you know, pay the rent here, it's, it's miserable. It's honestly, I think a lot of people are struggling. And, and what's really frustrating about that to a lot of us is the level of work we're performing. We feel like we're doing, you know, professional, important research that's fundamental to Stanford, that keeps Stanford going. It's sort of the mission of this institution is to carry out this research and also to assist in the education. Sometimes 
you know, grad students will be the main instructor for a course. And that doesn't come with any additional sort of compensation. That's sort of your standard TA package. Additionally, we work very long hours. For me, it's I'm down in the lab. You know, I need a test that's going to run for 20 hours straight. And so I need to sort of be on call for that full duration in case, you know, the equipment throws an error or something like that. I'm not necessarily complaining about those hours personally. I think it, it's um, sort of an expectation that I had going into this lab. But mm -hmm. on the other hand, it is work, right? As much as I'm passionate about it, I don't want to let Stanford exploit that passion to have me, you know, advancing Stanford's own research agenda and helping Stanford, you know, elevate its status as a major institution without being compensated. The Stanford Graduate Workers Union was officially created and recognized by university officials in 2023. They want better pay and benefits, affordable living conditions, more protection for international students, and more influence in university decision-making. Chafee, who's a member of the union's bargaining committee, says they also want a better way to address employer harassment and discrimination. I think a lot of people have had or know someone who has had sort of a bad relationship with their research advisor or their, someone on their, on their thesis committee. Um, and we all know that there's a lot of power there that they have over sort of the direction of your entire career. An advisor can be abusive towards a student. We need actual protections about that. The sort of current things that Stanford has implemented are, are insufficient to actually protect the workers here, given that, that there's often that power imbalance. Stanford's administration says it supports the union and looks forward to negotiating in good faith. Those negotiations began in late 2023. And for starters, the university has proposed that graduate workers be able to resolve harassment and discrimination complaints through the process available to Stanford employees rather than the one for students. Tom Chafee has a few years left in his geophysics PhD, during which time he plans to stay active with the Stanford Graduate Workers Union, in large part because of the connections he's building across campus. I've really come to appreciate the diversity of people here. Um, I was living in a little geophysics bubble where we're all earth scientists and we're happy because we go outside and lick rocks. Um, Not literally. You don't literally lick rocks. There's, uh, there's a test to differentiate between mudstone and siltstone where you actually have to grind it on your teeth a little bit in the fields. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Earth science is weird. Everyone knows it. Um, so seeing the different work experiences people have and the different life experiences a lot of people have. We have people from almost every country in the world here. Stanford really feels like a little cross-section of the whole world. We have all these different cultures interacting. And he's excited about the legacy his work with the union may leave behind. I had a lot of people who told me, I'm so glad that you guys unionized in the spring. That really made me like want to come here, which is just awesome to hear. And, and many of them have already gotten substantially involved as organizers, which is fantastic. I guess that some of the younger Gen Z crowd really feel it in their bones that this unionization thing is how we help each other, how we work together and struggle to improve our conditions. Tom Chafee is a fourth-year PhD worker and bargaining committee representative for the Stanford Graduate Workers Union. Most of the time, these new unions affiliate with an established labor outfit, like Workers United or the Service Employees International Union, SEIU. 
or the United Steelworkers, so they can tap into legal resources and seasoned contract negotiators. Because the real benefits of unionization really only come once you've secured a collective bargaining agreement with the employer. That can take years. And as we've established, this new generation of union workers has high expectations. So what's that like for the veteran union reps doing the negotiating? It makes it harder, but isn't it invigorating? Next up, how established unions are adapting in this historic moment for organized labor. I'm Julie Rose. This is Top of Mind. Hey, friends, if you are looking for another great show from the BYU Radio family of podcasts, check out Constant Wonder. Host Marcus Smith takes you on an exhilarating journey through captivating stories of our magnificent natural world. You'll gain profound insight into different facets of our planet, discover more about nature, and maybe even ponder your connection to Earth's wonder. The show is Constant Wonder, and you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Galen Prescott. I'm the district director in District 12, which is the Steelworkers' Western Region. So I work for the Steelworkers' Union. United Steelworkers is one of the big unions that's been around since basically the beginning of organized labor in the U.S. It started in steel, but today the name's deceptive. We have a lot of folks that work in oil and chemical, a lot of refinery workers. Uh, We have more paper workers in our union than any. So folks that are making your brawny paper towels, your toilet paper, that those are steelworker-made products. Tire and rubber. If you have a tire made in the U.S., very likely made by a steelworker. Prescott got his first union job in the 1980s after a brief stint in college. Went to work in my dad's footsteps at the Reynolds Metals Aluminum Smelter in Longview, Washington. Your younger listeners may not know this, but the 80s were a brutal time to be in organized labor. Wages for, were relatively stagnated. De- deindustrialization was occurring, so those pressures were mounting. Uh, unemployment was never really low in the 80s. It was always uh, a struggle. And uh, like every union, we struggled to get good contracts. We lost a lot of uh, important benefits. We had a 10-week vacation that our, you know, our members used to enjoy. Every five years of employment, you got a 10-week period off with 13 weeks of pay. That was such an important benefit to lose. I think young people today can't imagine uh, an environment where you could actually have 10 weeks of vacation, 13 weeks of pay every five years. Well, we had it. We had it and we lost it. Um, and and that, that made an impact on me. Prescott spent the next 40 years working his way up the union ranks. Today, he oversees United Steelworkers activity in 10 Western states and Hawaii. And a big part of his job is leading union negotiations with employers. Right now, that feels different. Uh, Yeah, I I think that um, workers have always understood the value of unions to some degree. But I do think that young folks, you know, generationally um, have a different view. And maybe it's in part COVID and in part other things, but uh, they have expectations that are even higher than the generation before them in terms. And when I say expectations, I'm not talking about expectations necessarily about remuneration. 
about wages, but I think they have an expectation that they'd be treated with justice and dignity in the workplace, that they have a, a fundamental human right to being treated respectfully. We want it, we demand it, and how are we going to get it? Well, maybe the union is the way to go. Well, if you ask me, it's the only way to do it. So. You mentioned that they have higher expectations. What does that look like when it comes to the negotiation with an employer? What's, what's something that they're asking for? Attendance policies would be one example where it was fairly common for us to say to workers 30 years ago that, look, your number one job is to come to work and be, be at work every day. And, you know, that may mean dragging yourself to work when you have a sick kid at home and finding someone else to care for that child. Young workers are not going to tolerate that today. They expect to be able to stay home and care for a sick child if they have a, a child to care for without, you know, feeling guilty about it or, or suffering disciplinary action. That's an expectation that has evolved, uh, rightfully so, and it's a challenge to negotiate that. Now, the, the laws have adapted to some degree with FMLA and some of the state activity that protects folks, but it's still it's still a challenge in, in the workplaces, and it's a challenge to educate employers that what they have to do to abide by those laws. Are, are you finding that employers are more open than they used to be <laughs> to those kinds of things? Or are they still kind of consistently pushing back when you're at the negotiating table? Uh, they, they push back, but in, in fairness, I would say that they understand that the atmosphere has changed and the expectations are different. And they are moving in, in many cases to accommodate those younger workers coming in and working with us to provide some vacation relief, for example, in that first year of employment, first, second year of employment. Really? You, you could really get hired on full-time at, at a plant or at a hospital and have like no vacation time for the first two years? Yeah. It was not uncommon to work a full year before you had any vacation uh, accrued at all. That was my experience. <laughs> when I went to work at Reynolds Metals Company, yeah, I worked a year and after a year, I got a week's vacation. After two years, I got a week and one day. Yes. Interesting. You got some paid holidays, like you might get Christmas off. Well, that's an interesting one, right? So if you're making aluminum in an aluminum smelter, they don't really turn off the smelter uh, to, you know, on Christmas Day. It runs 24-7, you know, 365 days a year, and that means you're going to have to go to work. So uh, the holidays were great because you got double time and a half you know, for working the holidays. So you got to make, you know, some nice money, but, uh, but you were working. You were, you, yeah. I made, uh, you know, made lots of money on Christmas days. Yeah, that's a grind though. Oh, it's terrible. Uh, it, it's fine for someone who has no children, right? When I was in my twenties and I didn't have kids, I didn't have, uh, my family would have Thanksgiving dinner and save me some turkey. Got to go home and see my parents and have turkey dinner that evening. But if you've got children and it's their first Christmas, imagine that, right? It's just, uh, look, it's, work sucks. <laughs> really? Do you think that's the general idea of most union workers is that like, this is a drudgery that I have to do and I'd like to not have it, you know, have it be as pleasant as possible? I have, uh, I've never forgotten what it felt like to go down and punch pots, which is the job I had at the smelter. It, it sounds just as miserable as it is. Uh, I have no idea what it is. It's a big electric furnace that's a couple thousand degrees of molten material, and you're punching it with a giant jackhammer on wheels uh, or, or with a gas hole bar by hand, you know, breaking the crust in. Uh, it's very hot. It spits 
at you because it's you know actively energized with a hundred thousand amps of electricity and it, it's it's hot it's miserable it's dirty you have to wear a respirator on your face because the you know the the fumes are not good for you you know that's how you get to spend your christmas day but they also get to spend the rest of your work life right it's it's hot it's miserable uh, frankly it it's not very fulfilling you don't get to go home fulfilled right your fulfillment comes from your paycheck that's how we build your cars and make the glass and that's tough are those the workers for whom unions really matter like that it's the workers that are doing the jobs that are not super fulfilling but it's for the paycheck yeah no that that's right um i mean i'd like to think we try and bring some fulfillment to that environment and i think unions do that i I do they did for me so what do you think about you know white collar workers who are unionizing uh, or graduate students who are unionizing faculty members or even you know i mean a lot of nursing staff that you represent like that that is a fulfilling job for them um and yet they're also very engaged in unionizing i guess we could even think about hollywood actors right like they're clearly choosing to be actors um what do you make of that? Do you think unions are, are, are really the right tool for them to be getting what they need or want? No, I think that there's no such thing as a job that's just perfect all the time. And uh, I like to think that I'm not unique in the idea that there's no such thing as a good boss, no such thing as a good king, no such thing as a, you know, a benevolent ruler. Uh and I'm a boss, right? I got 20 staff that work for me, staff representatives. And I, I told them just last, uh, I think we had a meeting two weeks ago and somewhere along the you know opening comments, I said, you know, like I know I'm a boss and I know there's no such thing as a good boss. So, What do you mean there's no such thing as a good boss? It, it's the boss's job to kind of, you know, right, we have this role to, t- to take care of business. And sometimes taking care of the business, that responsibility leaves us with blind spots to the human needs of the workers we rely on to get that stuff done. I'll tell you, as a union leader, the expectations of our staff is tremendous. They they don't work 40-hour weeks. They work, you know, in some cases, 70 or 80-hour weeks, probably. I, I don't measure it. They, they do it as a labor of love, but they also do it because there's an expectation to get it done. And I think all labor leaders, this is not unique for me. We really expect a lot from our staff. And we, we, it hurts. And that makes you a bad boss? Well, it hurts us when our members feel like they're not getting the kind of service that they need or want from their union. And so we, we impose that expectation on the, on the staff that work for us uh, to go out and meet those members' needs. It's tough to meet that need. I'll just tell you, our members have very high expectations. When they pick up the phone, they want you to answer. And they don't care if it's Christmas morning. They want you to answer the phone because they have a question about a grievance or someone got discharged and they want help now. Can you imagine that environment working for an employer that expects you to pick your phone up Christmas morning at 9 o'clock while your children are opening presents? That's a tough, tough thing to do. Uh, That's not a good boss. All right. So a good boss is one that can deliver a sort of perfectly balanced and reasonable and satisfying work experience to every employee, which, of course, is impossible. (laughs) Therefore, everybody's bad at it. I think you hit the nail on the head. We can't deliver that. 
But what we can do is if we work collaboratively with our workforce, with the folks, and they have a true legitimate voice, if they can come to me and, and demand better treatment without you know, threat of retaliation by me, if, if they have a true open door, you know, all bosses say, oh, I have an open door policy. It does, they, that means I'm open to hear what I decide I want to hear. They don't really, they're not required to hear you out. They're not required to make action. But if you are represented, if you have a union, then that open door is not an open door. It's truly a right to demand justice and dignity from the boss. Our members, our, our um, staff, these 20 folks that I talked about, where my expectations are high, they're represented. They have their own union. Oh, I was going to say, so your employees are unionized and you're the employer in that scenario. You have their union coming to you and saying, we don't want to answer our phones on Christmas Day or whatever it is. Yes, that's correct. They're represented. Do you enjoy that experience being the no. employer that has a union coming at you? It's the worst element of the job. I don't want to be an employer. I don't like being an employer. I'm not very good at it. Frankly, we're just not very good at it. Um, mostly because of the unrealistic expectations, probably, that you place upon yourselves. And, I mean, unions have such high expectations of employers that it would really stink to be an employer within that environment, knowing uh, that you can't fulfill those expectations. It's just this yin and yang. It just, I, I don't, I'm not comfortable in the role. I don't like the role. But it's a necessary role. I understand that. You want your employees to have union representation. Oh, I, I, I love it. I, I, I mean, if you, you know... I'll tell them, you know, I've got a plan. If you don't like it, we can talk about it. And if if I dig in and we're going to do it and you still don't like it, you have a grievance procedure. You know, challenge me. Feel free. I will have no hard feelings. I wish every boss would think that way, right? Workers deserve a voice. So these high-profile strikes that we've seen happening here over the last couple of years, what effect is that having on your membership? You know, is there more of a hunger, more of an appetite right now among your members? I think so. It's a tough, it's, there's always, I can tell you, I've been doing this a long time. Our members want to go on strike a lot. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes it makes sense to do that, but it's, it, it's pretty rare. It's pretty rare where that's the right move. Uh, I, I think that we really, 99% of our contracts are negotiated without a labor dispute, without a strike. And that's, that's a number that's still true today. As much as you read about strikes in the news, we don't see workplaces running out on strike everywhere. It, it, uh, we've seen employers bend to the will of those higher demands. Uh, we've seen some of the richest labor negotiations in the last couple of years as we've ever seen. And, and that's because we're smart. We're good at the table. We're, we know what we're doing. And there are real needs that need to be met. When, when does it make sense to go on strike then? Uh, when employers are just at their core disrespectful to working people. When they want to they wanna fatten their already fat pockets off the backs of, of workers, where they don't respect the value and the contribution that workers are making to their organization. That's, that's when you're forced into a place where you've got to take that extra measure and, and, and demand justice and dignity and, and demand respectful treatment. And so the fact that you're rarely going on strike means that most employers want to do right on some level by their their, their employees. I, I yeah, I think that I, I I'll say it this way. Usually not out of the gate. I wouldn't say most employers are that way out of the gate, but I do believe that if we're if if we behave respectfully at the bargaining table, if we if if we do 
a good job of representing our members and we're not just being silly union leaders posturing for applause. If we're being thoughtful about it, about the approach and educating our, our members uh, about why we ought to do this or ought to do that, em- employers respect that. And, and they'll come around and while they may start the start off as an adversary and, and thinking that, you know, look, we're adversaries, that's, that's just the nature of the beast, but th- they may think we're an evil that needs to be eradicated. Okay, that, that's how some employers look at us. And we can usually fix that. We can usually tell them, look, we're an institution that are simply demanding to be respected. Does the presence of a union increase the chances that that relationship will be antagonistic? between the employees and the employer? Yeah, uh, I'll be honest, yeah. That's kind of where unions get a little bit of a bad rap is we get this, oh, we're just, <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're, we're this adversarial entity and that's, that's our role in life. I don't think it has to be that. There is an alternative that's been around for decades but has gained new momentum recently. It's called a Labor Management Partnership, or LMP, The Department of Labor opened an office dedicated to promoting LMPs in 2022. The idea is for a company and its employee unions to form an active collaboration where they're identifying issues and working together on solutions year-round rather than shoehorning all of their demands into high-stakes contract negotiations that are bound to be contentious. One of the most ambitious and well-known labor management partnerships in the United States formed in 1997 between healthcare giant Kaiser Permanente and its employee unions. As it turns out, one of the unions under Galen Prescott's purview at United Steelworkers is part of that Kaiser LMP. You know, we, we do have a partnership with them. We, it, I, it's a frustrating one. Uh, but, but it's certainly, they, they, do, they do make an effort. I'll give them that, uh, a, a real effort at times. And at times, not such a real effort. He says it's just really hard for a large organization to create a lasting culture where managers all up and down the ladder are truly listening to employees. And not not just responding empathetically, you know, to get them to make them go away, but actually hear what they're saying and then validating their input by putting actions into place that, that fix the problem. That's a challenge because it it's kind of antithetical to what a boss is supposed to do. You're, you know, you're responsible for leading the organization and meeting your objectives. Uh, and when you start relying on your workers to guide that process, um, you know, it delegitimizes or disempowers the boss t- to some degree. Not every boss is receptive to that. And even if they're receptive at first, it's kind of a natural human tendency to at least where bosses are concerned, to migrate back to that that you know power structure where you, know, you don't necessarily operate on a consensus basis. The Kaiser LMP has had clear ups and downs. In October 2023, 75,000 Kaiser employees walked off the job to protest staffing shortages and tough working conditions. It was the largest healthcare labor dispute in U.S. history and lasted three days before Kaiser and the unions reached a deal. We invited Kaiser Permanente to talk with us about the Labor Management Partnership. They declined, but they have publicly affirmed their commitment to getting the LMP back on track. For his part, union negotiator Galen Prescott still sees a lot of potential in labor management partnerships. In fact, it's the arrangement he'd actually prefer. 
if the employer will cooperate and and uh, give us the kind of assurances we need, we need to have a, a jointly administered process where the union is truly a partner, then I would prefer to have it. Um, but if it's just going to be window dressing, then I have no interest in that because uh, it, it it can be really risky for the union. It makes us look uh, like we're in bed with management, frankly, and that, that can be detrimental to our objective. Uh, so it has to be done right. People need to be empowered. Galen Prescott is director of District 12 for the United Steelworkers. You remember Thomas Cohan, the MIT labor expert we heard from earlier? Well, he's a huge proponent of labor management partnerships. He actually helped to form the Kaiser One back in the 90s. So I talked to him about it too. And he said that LMPs, when they're done right, are a way to give workers a voice without the drag on profits and productivity that companies fear when employees unionize. Kaiser Permanente had suffered a decade of losses prior to forming its partnership with the unions. And since then, it's had two decades of strong returns and continued to pay industry-leading wages, says Kohan. The traditional form of arm's length where the company tries to keep the union having limited influence, the union is just pushing hard for improving wages and protecting workers who may not be uh, performing their jobs adequately. Yes, that's going to lead to lower productivity and slower innovation. But over the the last uh, 30 years, we have seen places where unions are treated as partners with management, where unions are accepted, where workers themselves at the workplace are encouraged to work in teams and meet on a periodic basis, usually at least a monthly basis, to talk about what are the issues we're facing and how do we work together on these things. And that's supported by unions that work with company executives at a higher level where they share information, they oversee these joint processes, and then they take action on a more organization-wide level to address the issues that are, are bubbling up from the workforce. That improves productivity. It improves job satisfaction and lowers turnover. So it has real economic benefits to the company and to the workforce. Those are the forms of labor management relationships that I have been promoting for at least 40 years. And I think we've seen successes. We just need to see them spread as the norm. But if we're going to have these pitched battles between business and labor, then we're going to be stuck in the old model. And we won't make the changes to uh, really realize the full potential of labor management relations and worker voice. Unions and LMPs aren't the only way to get there, says Kohan. But the underlying principles of organized labor are. It's the collective effort to work to support each other, to achieve the things that are most important to people on their job, and that then allow them to really engage their work to improve the quality of work and the quality of the work that they perform for their customers, their patients, their students, um, the the, the people who buy their products and services. Uh, You can call them whatever you want. Maybe they'll be called professional associations. Maybe they'll be called guilds. Whatever we call them, they're going to be organizations that pursue those principles of advancing worker voice, giving workers themselves more more voice over the things they care about, and working hard in building bargaining power, but then working hard to uh, work collaboratively with employers that are willing. Those are the unions of the future. We may come up with different terms, but the functions are still the same. Professor Cohen, 
Does this new wave of union support and activity and these new kinds of demands that union workers are making, does does this tell you anything about the nature of the workplace in America, uh, what we Americans are thinking about work and what it means to us? I absolutely believe that Americans are looking for higher quality work, higher quality jobs, higher quality careers. If you look historically in the 1940s and 50s, 90% of us who grew up, and I grew up in that that, uh, era, uh, could look forward to doing better than our parents. Today, the chances are 50-50 of children being able to do better than their parents. That says that there are a lot of people, parents, grandparents, who worry about this for their children or grandchildren, and the kids themselves look at the reality and say, I'll never be able to buy a house. I'll never be able to afford the standard of living that I grew up in unless something changes. That's what's driving this. And, and I believe American workers are realizing that and they're taking action now to try to figure out what can we do. And those organizations uh, that respond to that in effective ways will have a higher quality of workforce, they'll have lower turnover, they'll have more satisfied workers, they'll have more satisfied customers, and they'll, they'll be required to pay a higher rate of wages and benefits, but they should be able to recoup that productivity by having better uh, quality of, of, of work. Thank you so much for your time today, Professor Cohen. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Julia. It's a pleasure to talk with you about these issues, and let's hope we can all have a a really positive future of work. It's been great having you with us today. And would you do me a quick favor? On whatever app you're using right now, would you leave Top of Mind a rating or a review? That'll help other people to find us. And be sure to connect with us on social media. We are at Top of Mind Pod. Top of Mind is a BYU radio podcast. Today's episode was produced by Elena Beck, Samuel Benson, and me, with help from James Hoops and Sam Payne. We had sound design by Kelsey Ney, Brandon Lewis, and Trent Reimschussel. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon.